Grab a seat. It is so lovely to see so many of you here today. Good morning. Hey, well, uh, welcome to Riverbend. We're so glad to have you here. Uh, my name is Brooke. I'm one of the pastors. And what I'd love for us to do is uh, we're going to actually, I know you just sat down, but we actually have this thing that we do every single week where we read the scriptures together and we stand together and read the scriptures. So I'm going to ask you to just stand up real quick, get that blood flowing really quick. We'll be awake just for a minute. We're going to read the scriptures out loud together. Now, as many of you know, we've been uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. We are continuing in that series today, the next passage of scripture. And we are going to read uh, our text for today out loud together. Follow along with me. It should be right here on the screen. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Let's take a moment and pray. Holy Spirit, we just invite you into this space. We simply pray the ancient prayer, come Holy Spirit. And even in this moment, we want to slow down. We want to be aware of where you might want to speak specifically in each of us. We slow our minds to pay attention to the different emotions or thoughts or ideas in which we've maybe been buying into that are not you, that are not your kingdom, that are not free and life-giving and flourishing, but are quite the opposite. And so, Holy Spirit, uh, I confess that I have no recipe of words together that is going to change the heart of us in this room. But, Holy Spirit, you have the power to move in us and to create conviction, encouragement, change, repentance, holiness, goodness, life. And so we pray that you would come and do that. Would you make us whole, flourishing people, people that are fully integrated, not disintegrated, but fully integrated with you and with each other. And as we read your word and as we move into this moment to understand better the teachings of Jesus, would you just give us a clear thinking, wise mind to be able to understand truly what Jesus you are trying to communicate. We pray this for your glory and our good. And everyone said joyfully, please. Amen. Amen. You can grab a seat. So as I mentioned, uh, we are going through the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, if you were not here, we covered the wonderfully not, uh, not intense topic of divorce. So uh, Andrew did an amazing job. Did, wasn't that an amazing job last week? I really appreciated that. No one's clapping for you because they're uncomfortable. They're not sure. Can I clap for divorce? He taught well. He, un- he helped us understand the scriptures and Jesus' heart on divorce. And I was really blessed and encouraged by that. And Jesus moves from this topic of divorce right into this wonderfully popular idea today of oaths and vows and truth-telling. And as we've been discussing week in and week out, Jesus is calling you and I to a life of flourishing, 
not just in certain arenas of our life, but actually in all of life. And today we see especially in how we speak. Now, as many of you are aware of, the current moral climate uh, of our culture allows for a lot of bending of the truth or a distance from what is known as reality. Would you agree with me? <laughs> yeah. Uh, whether that's from the news or to leadership in our country or to the friend that tells you, you look great when you know the opposite is very true, right? <laughs> Truthfulness and right speech is something that seems to you and I to be more of a peripheral issue, even in our Christian culture. It seems to be not that big of a deal. But in Jesus' sermon and in the kingdom specifically, it is a central issue and it's important. Now, I want to start this morning out with a simple disclaimer, okay? I lie. You're laughing. You're like, do we laugh at him or do we believe him? And I hope with confessing this, this is not to overshare, but rather to be transparent about the reality that many of us lie on a day-to-day basis, whether we are fully aware of it or not. Now, I'm not like sitting in major sin and lying. These are not major lies. I would equate these to little lies that make my life easier. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm not going to put a, I didn't rear in that person. That didn't happen, right? Now, if you did that, please do not tell me there's police officers in the room. Please don't do it. Uh, But you can sit there and judge. We can sit there and judge one another. But once we look into what Jesus is actually talking about, I think you and I will see so much more clearly that we're not always as honest as we would hope or even think we are. Are we tracking? So a big question that I know I have, and I'm sure you have too, that Jesus helps us understand here is why we lie. The question, why do we lie, right? Why does this come out? Why when someone asks you something that you know, this happens with kids all the time. Did you do this? No. And you saw them do the thing and you watched them do the thing, but why is their immediate response no? You're like, hey, you won't even get in trouble for this, right? And they're like, okay, I'll be honest, right? Uh, We all have this tendency to lie for a handful of reasons. Sometimes we lie because we don't want someone to feel bad. You ever done that? I'm going to spare their feelings and tell them what they want to hear. That's actually lying and honestly usually unhelpful in relationships. Sometimes we lie because we don't want to deal with a conflict that will come by telling the truth. Any married person in the room know what I'm talking about. Like, I'm not touching that one today. We will not be discussing that for the next week. I do not have the emotional capacity to deal with this. Sometimes we also lie because we're trying to hide a certain part of ourselves, right? We try to hide something that we might be embarrassed or shameful to admit. The reality is we all have to deal with this issue of honesty. The reality is we lie. And Jesus graciously, in this passage today, reminds us of the importance of the truth and what it looks like today, right now, to be an apprentice of Jesus in this moment. Now, if you're a person here who asks yourself yourself the question, well, what is the worst that can happen when lying? Let me just take you on like a quick, quick sidestep through history to explain how devastating dishonest speech can actually be. And for that, I want to introduce you to a character named Walter Durante. Please remember that name. Now, you probably have never heard of Walter Durante unless you are a history nerd, which a guy after the last gathering came up and said, I know exactly who that is. And then I said, nerd, and then we just left. I'm just kidding. He's a friend. He's a, he's a nice guy. He left the church. He's not coming. Uh, no, he's a friend. But it was amazing. He actually knew who he was. But most of you will not know who this is. His name's Walter Durante. 
And in 1930, he had this prestigious job, and he was a reporter for the New York Times. And he wrote one sentence in an article that determined the fate of four million different people. And this was the sentence. The sentence was this. There is no famine or actual starvation, nor is there likely to be. So he basically says this phrase, this one sentence, and for context of why that matters or why that statement killed so many people, we need to look at what was going on in another part of the world at that same exact time. Now, if you are aware of history or care at all about history, in Moscow at that same time, there was a new powerhouse leader named Joseph Stalin. He was coming into power, and he was determined at that moment to wipe out private farms in the Ukraine and to put most of the people into these controlled communes. So his strategy, his team, the government strategy was to institute a policy that would begin to take away food and starve this region so they wouldn't have resources to live. Now, as you could expect, given the Soviet Union reputation and Soviet government reputation, they denied any problems. They denied that anything was wrong, and they stuck with this narrative that everything is actually okay. We're going to talk more about narrative building later, but remember this. They told this story, everything's fine. Have you ever done that with your kids where all of a sudden or your friends like everything's fine and everything is not fine. Everything is really not fine. Or you do that to your, your friend like I'm okay. And they're like, I don't know if that's true. Like, no, it's fine. It's not fine. That's one of these moments. Now, what's surprising and why this matters is that many of the Western reporters, including and especially this guy, Walter, they repeated this narrative and Moscow's interpretation of what was actually happening in the region at the time. And Walter actually went on to win a Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of these types of stories. So the result of Durante's forceful and overly confident statements was that there was, that there was no actual starvation. It assured all of the Western leaders that could provide aid or help that everything was okay. Don't worry, don't send help, don't send food, don't send money, we're fine. And his reporting immediately led to the death and the imprisonment of millions of people. So if you and I don't think that our lives are a big deal or that they can hurt people, we are dead wrong. So with all that in mind, I want to take one second to look at a few things. We're going to look over today what vows and oaths actually are, why the truth matters, and the higher calling from Jesus. That's where we're going today and Jesus starts with this idea of vows and oaths, with this interesting illustration. So I'm going to read it to you one more time just to get it back into your mind because it can be a little tricky. So check this out. It says again, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of a great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Or I would argue, grow, right? You can't make your hair grow. It's just a part of the reality we live in. <laughs> Some of you understand that. Anyway, um, for us to really understand what Jesus is getting at here, we first have to understand why he is using this illustration and what was going on. Like, what was the steamy topic about oaths and vows that were going on in the biblical times and narratives? So to help us understand really the importance of this and what was going on, I want to introduce you to one Old Testament character named Japheth. Can you guys say that? Japheth. It, two people. Great. Everyone else cannot speak. Uh, the, the story of Japheth, he is an Old Testament character, 
And, and his story specifically illustrates what can happen when we make vows without understanding the, the, the full consequence. When we commit to something and don't fully understand what we are committing to in part. Now, Japheth, before he was leading Israel into battle against this big army, the Ammonites, he was described as, by some as a mighty man of valor. He was a really courageous warrior in the time. And he made this really rash vow that he would give to the Lord, give to the Lord meaning sacrifice, he would give to the Lord whoever first came out of the doors to meet him if he returned home as the victor. So he's going off to war and he's like, Lord, if we come back and all my dudes are here and we win this war, whoever comes out of that door first, that person's yours. We will sacrifice that person. We'll give that person to you. So when the Lord granted him victory, he heads home. He runs home. He's excited. I can't believe God kept us alive. And the one that came out to meet him was his daughter. Then all of a sudden, Judges 11, Japheth remembered his vow and had to offer her to the Lord. Now, what this story, I know kind of gruesome, right? Uh, story shows is the foolishness of rash vows or making commitments that we are not fully connected to. He literally had to sacrifice his daughter because of a stupid in-the-moment vow. Question for you, have you ever made a vow in a moment or like, I promise to do this thing when you have no intention of doing it? You know what I'm talking about? Like, I, I promise you, like, you're saying that as an idea. Not everyone does this, but the idea to like say, no, I'm serious about this. Now, for us to understand the vows and the oaths, I think a little bit more background on what Jesus' words here mean is going to be important. So if you remember, Jesus is at a time when there was religious leaders, the Pharisees, you remember these. These re religious leaders, they, they were advocating that you have to keep a vow. Keep your vow. And the two things that you needed to make sure that you did it is it needed to be public and you needed to use God's name. That, those were the two things that really made the vow credible. That was the idea. However, if you made a vow in, in the course of your everyday conversation or just made it in passing, it, it didn't hold as much weight or credibility. Now, what this did is it created a loophole. Like, as long as I'm swearing on God that I'll do this thing in public out loud, it counts but then in private, I, I don't really have to honor the whole system. They could lie or exaggerate in their conversations and lend themselves to an air of credibility that says, I, I swear by heaven this is true when it's not true at all. They could not be held to account or be accountable because they were basically using all of God's name to swear on things in public that they never actually meant to follow through on. So Jesus counters this idea and he says, listen, stop being duplicitous. Be such a good person that your yes means yes and your no actually means no. You are a person of your word is how we would say it today. There's no need for exaggerating or, or expressions to bolster your case. Just be a person who says yes and means it and follows through on your commitment or no and follows through. Now, Psalm 15.4, if you don't know this verse, I'm going to read it to you, but it describes a righteous person as one who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. Some of you need to like underline that, star that, like if, you're, if you have the Bible app, like highlight that. The idea is that when you commit to something, you go all the way, even as to be inconvenienced or follow through, even if it sucks for you. That's the idea. The idea is that you follow through, even if it's challenging, inconvenient, inconveniencing, money's on the line, you follow through. 
Now, this is the complete opposite idea which is going on in our culture right now. Do you know what I'm talking about? The, well, who's going to be there question when you invite someone to dinner? That's never fun, is it? Well, who's going to be there? Uh, I am? Okay, well, let me just kind of leave my options open. I'll wait to commit, right? Uh, or the classic, no one ever RSV, RSVPs until like the very last minute so you can have all the options open on the table. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches make a commitment and stick to it even if it's incredibly inconvenient for you. Now, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 supports this biblical principle. He talks about the idea that oaths are binding, the idea of a promise. And even when they're spoken frivolously or even privately, they matter. A promise is a promise, and there's no loophole in God's eyes that allows a person to renege on a promise. The idea is that we keep our word even to our inconvenience. So he's basically saying, be cautious about what you promise. Be aware. Make sure that you calculate. Can I follow through on the thing that I'm about to commit to, right? And if you can't, then you need to stop. You need to slow down. Now, a bigger question that we might need to ask ourselves to understand what Jesus is saying here is why the truth matters. Like, think about it. Why does the truth actually matter? And I think this is a natural question that comes to all of our minds is why is this so important? And there's actually a few reasons why being people that tell the truth or why truth is so important. Now, first, besides emulating the character of God, truth-telling is absolutely critical for a few things. The first thing it is critical for is for flourishing in you and society. If you want to be a person that flourishes, if you want to be a part of a society that flourishes, you have to, we have to be people of honesty. Truth-telling actually builds trust between us, and it actually builds civil cooperation among human beings. It's the foundation, it's the bedrock of how we like decide we're going to like connect with people. Have you ever been uh, hanging out with a person, you find they're a dishonest person, you can't trust what they say. You can't really do much with that person. You don't go into like a business partnership with someone who's dishonest. You know what I'm talking about, right? You go, no, that's, that's super unwise. We can't go anywhere if I can't trust that what you say is true. Secondly, truth-telling is essential for authentic communication to occur between individuals. If you and I do not have truth as the foundation of our life or truthfulness, it's almost impossible to have a genuine interaction between two people or a group of people. Thirdly, truth-telling treats people with dignity. Uh, to tell someone that the truth, excuse me, to tell someone the truth is the measure of respect that is missing when someone's lied to. When you lie to somebody, we, we, we don't honor them, we're hurting them, we're not respecting them. It doesn't treat people with dignity. And fourthly, why the truth is important is, is it's critical to uphold a kingdom vision. We call ourselves Christians, right? At least most of us do. And the idea is that we live a part of a different kingdom. That's what Jesus is teaching here. That means our values, how we spend money, how we spend time, how we give, how we act, what we do with our time matters. And if we want to be people that uphold a kingdom vision, we have to be people of honesty because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. These are the reasons why the truth is so critically important for us as a culture, for you personally, and for us publicly. And as we read this passage, 
and we look at, okay, the ideas of oaths and vows and truth-telling, I think there's a higher calling here from Jesus. I really see, and I think we see, is there is a higher calling from Jesus. He simply says, be the type of person that comprehensively embraces kingdom living in every way. And I think that idea really leads us to a specific word, and that specific word is integrity. It's integrity. <laughs> that kid knew it was coming. Like, blah! Perfect timing. Now, many of you are uh, familiar with this word integrity, and if you don't know the definition, the word integrity means completeness, perfection, wholeness, absoluteness, entirety. If you understand or care about the Enneagram at all, if you're a one in the room, you are frothing at this idea. You love it, like perfection, wholeness, everything right and in order. That's not real. It's not the world how it works fully, but this is the idea of integrity, that you are a complete person, not perfect, but complete, that you are working towards this idea of perfection, never to attain it, this side of heaven, obviously, but there's wholeness, there's absoluteness. You're a person who is integrated, not disintegrated. So the question really becomes, if this is the higher calling of Jesus, the idea of integrity, how do we become those types of people, right? How do you and I today, tomorrow, this next week, become people that think through logically, critically about how we become these types of people that Jesus is calling us to be, not only for our flourishing, but for everyone else's as well? How do we become people of integrity? Well, there's a few ways that we see biblically. First, if you're a person here and you love note-taking, this is your time. I've got like five points here and three to follow sub-points. You're going to love it, okay? So get out, your, whether that's your phone or whatever, we have some points, okay? So five ways. First way. First way you grow in integrity. Start with the areas no one can see. One of the best ways you and I can discern whether or not we're making progress in the area of integrity is to ask ourselves, how do I live when no one's looking? Am I uh, living my life above board? What am I watching? What am I ingesting? How am I spending my time? Now, it's easy for you and I to look like people of integrity, right, when people are watching. But the question is, how do you and I live with that level of consistency in our private life? Does it transfer over? Do you live the same way in your public and private life? Now, so much of our life is actually uh, consumed by what some might call image maintenance. <laughs> you ever, did anyone wake up and go, like, I must exercise this morning. I must get ready. I have a full regimen before I go to church, right? We, we do this, right? Whether that's your physical image or the persona you give off, whether that's online or offline, we are consumed, most of us, not all of us, with the idea of image maintenance, we spend vast amounts of energy trying to get people to think about us the way we want to be thought about, right? Think about social media. You curate that feed to make sure that people go, wow, that life is worth living, and you're just crumbling inside, right? That's the most reality. Like, you get to meet a social media influencer, they're the most unhappy, absorbed, like self-absorbed people ever. It's, it's not fun, right? Their life does not reflect what is going on internally. John Ortberg, I love this quote, and I'm sorry in advance for saying it, but here it goes. Uh, he says this, human conversations... Uh, is largely an endless attempt to convince others that we are more assertive or clever or gentle or successful than they might think if we did not carefully educate them. <laughs> Whoa, just let that sink in for a second, right? We feel this desire to convince people. Like, and we could never say like, hey, I just want you to know I'm really great. Like, 
We don't say that because that'd be socially weird. That person's full of themselves. So we find these weird ways to educate people on our importance, don't we? You know what I did last week or you know what I spent time with or the name drop. You're like, let me pick that up for you. I've got that. Here you go. Like, please take that back. Jesus's words in Matthew 6, the very next chapter we're going to study soon, particularly around this topic, they're really hard to get around because Jesus says in, in verse 1 of chapter 6, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, women, friends, to be seen by them. For if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. It's possible for you and I to live one life publicly and another privately. But Jesus is saying that's, that's not integrity. That's not what integrity is. That's actually an invitation for God's discipline. We are to live with consistency in public and in private because the Father sees what is done in secret. Not because he's trying to harm you, but because he's trying to help you. He's trying to let you live a life of, help you live a life of flourishing. Now, uh, since this is the case, since Jesus sees all that is done, being faithful in small secret things is actually a big deal. You know, you have to think about it. It It might be the case that God is less concerned with your public persona than he is with your private character. He might be way more concerned about how you're acting at home when no one's looking than your public persona. He may be more concerned with how you manage your personal checking account than the big deal you're administering right now with the big business deal and you're doing all the books on that. He might care about your checking account more. It's in the small secret places of self-evaluation that God's grace changes you and shapes you into the image of his son. So first, start with those small areas. Secondly, how do we grow in integrity? The second way, which we see biblically, is to be ruthlessly honest with yourself. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says this, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. You ever breeze past a verse and go, oh, that's like pretty intense. That's this first sentence. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. When was the last time you're like, am I actually like seeking Jesus, walking with Jesus? Is this actually happening? Seek, test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. The Bible, so good. Now, of all the lies that you and I tell each other, the ones we tell to ourselves are usually the most deadly. Now, I cannot tell you how often in recent years, in my own life and also in many around me, in recent years have been faced with this new idea, not very new, but an idea called narrative building. Narrative building has been showing its face everywhere. Now, if you're not aware of what narrative building is, narrative building is the idea that you live by your narrative. What's your truth? Like, just live by your truth. Just decide what that is and live by it. That doesn't go well for society. Has anyone figured this out yet? It's basically you live by the idea that it's your narrative, your version of the story. And that doesn't always have to be connected to reality. That's the idea there. Now, this week, uh, story, this week I was actually talking to my therapist and he was helping me see, hey, there's things that feel true. They feel really true. But in reality, they're not true. I was like, wait, what? Like, now some of you might be used to this, but like, to me, that was a really, really important thing. Because I am more uh, centered on my emotions so I can feel things deeply and I can feel like certain realities are true, but in fact, they may not be. For example, you feel that you are a kind, thoughtful, aware of others type person only to be told by a friend or a spouse that you have room to grow. (laughs) You might be a narcissist, right? Like, (laughs) 
whoa, like that's a sobering reality. Like I thought I was doing all this stuff. Like, no, in reality, you are not doing the things maybe, maybe not in full, that you would hope to. What feels true is not always true. And we have to be careful. The idea that God won't use me if I sin. Anyone ever felt this way? Like Jesus, okay, so just picture this. You come to Jesus. He wells up in your heart with the Holy Spirit this beautiful joy to serve him, to follow him. What's the natural outcry of someone that's just filled up with love? What is that natural thing? What happens when you have a baby, right? You just want to give. You want to give time, attention. You want to help other people. You experience grace. You want other people to experience grace. And so we say, Jesus, use me. So then some of you are like, I'm going to go to Bible college. You get into ministry and they're like, what was I doing? This happens to people, right? I wasn't pointing out your story, but I guess that is your exact life. Andrew likes what he does. He's a good pastor. I didn't mean that. But the idea that we like get into this world and we struggle with this idea, God, can you even use me if I sin? But my question for you, for myself, for everybody in the room is, if you struggle with that question, here's my question. Is God using you? Like, have you messed up? Have you been a jerk this week? And like, God still decided to be like, I'm going to actually use you in spite of you. Can we just say thank you to Jesus for that? That's such a gift. Like he uses us. You can be a terrible person and still be used by Jesus. Now that's not his like first option. And honestly, it's very destructive for other people and yourself. Like that's a hard road to go down. But nonetheless, Jesus can use us in spite of us. We see moral failure more than ever right now in leadership, especially Christian leadership. And here's the thing that I like cannot get around. Jesus still used a lot of these people even in their sin. And that's not to judge, that's to say thank you, Jesus, for knowing what we need in spite of what we need. Thank you for dealing with our sin on the cross. There's certain things that we don't know that we need that Jesus says, I'm gonna give you. Or maybe in the idea of narrative building, just one more thing to help us really understand the importance and also the, the very unhealthy reality that we're living in with narrative building. Maybe you're at work and someone has crossed you. They're your friend and, and then, or it's a relationship that's close. And this person was once close, but now they have become an enemy. And they become an enemy because they said something, they did something, they mishandled something that you thought was wrong, inappropriate, whatever. Fill in the blank. And now they are your enemy. And isn't it interesting that in any conflict, you are never the enemy? Isn't that interesting? Like, isn't it interesting that in the story that you have built in your mind around your, your argument, let's just use a spouse relationship, the argument that you had, that they were wrong, they're the enemy. How could they say that to me? You know who I am? Like, right? You, like, have this idea that they are wrong, you are right. But what happens in narrative building is we have to be the hero of our own story, and this is incredibly destructive. And we have a hard time at moments, accepting how we acted or how poorly we handled the situation or treated a person. And because of that, we can't sit with ourselves. We can't be the enemy. So you begin to twist the story so it fits that narrative that you are the victim or you didn't do the thing that... Does this sound like I know what I'm talking about? I do this all the time. I'm learning. I'm growing, okay? Anyway, we usually wiggle out of these situations by narrative building. It's in our minds. It justifies our actions or it allows us to live with ourselves. And the hard part is it's not always connected to reality. And this is incredibly dangerous. Why? Because when we begin to believe our narratives are actually reality, we begin to live them and be them. When we believe these narratives, we become these narratives. And if you don't have honesty with yourself and from others of how you move through the world, 
and what the truth actually is. You can get lost in a false reality. We can get lost in a false reality where we are not even connected with what's really going on. So to encourage you, question your motives. Don't always think you're the best. Don't always think you're the one that's got it figured out. To grow in integrity, we have to stop justifying what you know to be wrong. If you're wrong, own it. And, and lastly, on, on that point, stop excusing yourself. Don't excuse yourself. Be ruthlessly honest. This isn't beat yourself up because you sinned. This is being honest about where you're at, who you actually are, where you're at in your process of faith. That's what it's about. Third way we grow in integrity. We seek wise counsel. Uh, if you want to know about wise counsel, read the book of Proverbs. It's all over the place. But it says this, where there's no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Some of you are making really massive decisions and you do not tell anyone until you announce it on Instagram and you're already six states away. <laughs> Has this happened to anyone this year, right? Like, oh, I guess they moved. Our friendship might be different now. I think we might be engaging in a different kind of frequency, right? Like, we are making these major life decisions, right, with no counsel. The Bible says, listen, bring in people that love you. Bring in people that trust you. There's safety for you in that. It's not about people jumping in and telling you yes or no. It's about helping you. Because here's the deal. We all have blind spots, don't we? And if you think you don't, you're very blind, right? We all have blind spots, very blind spots that we don't see. You've ever heard that saying, uh, your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. Every, every uh Every gift has a backside weakness, right? It's very true. It's one thing to be honest with yourself, but sometimes you and I are just blind to the faults that other people can see. You know, uh, Christian and Katie, hi guys. You got married last week. I got to do their wedding. I'm so happy. Welcome back. Let's give it up for these guys. Welcome back. I'm ha I was, it was such a beautiful wedding. But I was just thinking, like, we, we were doing premarital and all this different stuff. And I know that so many people are shocked by this, but marriage is actually not for your happiness. It's actually for your holiness. And if you've been married for any length of time, it will do that. It will help you become holy if you let it. But here's the deal. Jesus used, uses relationships and others to help us see things that we might not see, that we might be blind to. And when we bring wise counsel in, we can grow in integrity. Find three or four people who believe in you, who love you, who actually want the best for you, and ask them to speak into your life. And if you don't have that, just send a text out today. Do a group text. Hey, I'm going to meet with you guys once a month. Please, I'm going to ask three specific questions. Please be honest with me, ruthlessly honest, about how I'm moving through the world. How am I treating my family? How am I being in the world? Fourth way that we uh, move and grow into integrity, this higher idea that Jesus calls us to, is we decide as people to honor God and not please people. Now, for some of us, this is super easy, right? Like, you have no problem pleasing people. You could care less. You couldn't care less. You're like, I, their happiness doesn't bother me. Other people, this is like your kryptonite, right? Pleasing people is very hard for you. You know that, like, I can't have people upset with me. Now, doing the right thing is almost never the easy thing, and sometimes it's not the popular thing. Honoring God is not the same as believing that you are always right and everyone else is wrong. It simply means you are going to live with a long view of what to do informed by the scripture. It means sometimes that you're going to endure short-term pain for the longer vision, for the longer-term gain of what you've committed to. This helps us as well to avoid from becoming arrogant or deluded 
So what we do here is we test the obedience that we've been called to against scripture, against prayer, and against the circle of wise counsel. Are you living in obedience to what's called, what God's called you to through the scriptures, through prayer, and through people that love you? So we need to be people that honor God and not just please people. And fifthly, the fifth way that we can just grow in this idea, the higher calling of Jesus and integrity, is to be appropriately transparent. I've been shocked at recently at how much transparency gives permission for people to be transparent. Have you experienced this? Every single one of you have a gnarly story. And how I know this is because I have conversations with you week in and week out. Each of you could have a book, a literal, beautiful, interesting, colorful book of your life, of the ups and the downs, the tragedies you faced. Some of you are 50, 60, 70 plus years old and have secrets you've never told anyone. You've been carrying it your whole life. I would say the Spirit's encouraging you to share that now. But beside that, you've been carrying these things your whole life. We all have these wounds, these scars. And there's a moment, my friends, to be appropriately transparent. You don't have to overshare, but you do need to share with someone. You don't need to share with everyone, but you do need to share with someone. And you would be shocked how Jesus uses the transparency of your life and your story to open up doors and windows and beautiful opportunities for healing to come. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is not one person who can hide their thoughts from God, for nothing that we do remains a secret. And nothing is created that is concealed, but everything is exposed and defenseless before his eyes. The reality is there can be a big gap of who we actually are right now and who we want to be. Would you agree? We see the vision of who we want to become, but then you wake up and you realize, I still got a long way to go. And that reality can be challenging sometimes. But as we become people of integrity, we become people that admit our shortcomings and we don't have to feel so cast aside. You don't have to tell, like I said, everyone, but you do need to tell someone. Part of being honest with yourself is being honest with others. Now, for the person in the room that's afraid they're going to lose face, lose credibility, lose reputation because they share an honest part of their heart with somebody, they share a deep struggle, a deep concern, a deep secret, we often think we're going to lose face. But most of the time, when we actually share with people, they don't think less, they actually think more of you. So let me speak a truth to a lie that a lot of us believe in. You actually have more power and authority in the spirit when you're honest than when you live in a lie. I know it's counterintuitive, but it's also incredibly transformative when we are honest about what's going on inside. And for some of you today, that's, that's part of your responsibility, your story. Now, as we close, uh, some of you may be thinking, but how, right? Like you gave me the five steps, that's great. Those are five things you can do this week. Those are just practical things that you can start processing and praying through with Jesus. But you might say, I'm not a whole integrated person. I desire this, but like, I don't even know where to begin. I'm living a double life right now. I'm not integrated. I am disintegrated. You may say that the power of sin has a real grip on your life and you don't even know where to begin. For that, I want to give you two reminders. First, you and I will struggle with sin throughout our whole life. And that's not to say to be de depressing. It is an honest truth that we need to sit in. You and I will not be perfect until heaven. So if you're a perfectionist striving for perfectionism, I just let you off the hook. It's not going to happen. <laughs> not this side of heaven. 
We make attempts. We schedule our lives. Yes, but you will have this thing called sin. We plan for it. We're aware of it. We deal with it. But it will be a part of our reality until death do us part. Jesus knew we would struggle with sin. So he made arrangements a long time ago on the cross so he could deal with all of it. What a gift. What a gift. The second reminder you and I can and should grow in sanctification through our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're not helpless. You are not defenseless. Sin does not actually have power to rule you and to suppress you. A verse that I struggle with so much is when we realize that what we let in us is what has power over us. What you say yes to in your life is what you give permission to have power over you. As an example, you let gossip in your life, it can overpower you. You let lust, anger, pride, all that stuff into your life. What we give permission to and what we ingest, we give permission to take power over us. But at the very same time, we have the power by the Holy Spirit to actually change. You have an active part in your discipleship to Jesus. You may fall, but as Proverbs says, and I love this, it says, though the righteous fall. Anyone sinned recently? Can we all raise our hand? Yeah, you're righteous. You want us to serve Jesus, but you fall. It says, even though they fall seven times, and that's not an actual number, the idea is like over and over and over. Even though they fall over and over and over, they rise again. You're going to fall. Get back up. That's the idea. Don't stay down. When you do, that's when you give up. So how can we be delivered from the power of sin? I told you I have more points. Three, three quick ways. How, do we, how can we actually today, if you're sitting here like sin or uh, sin just has power over me, I just feel like I am not this integrated person. Three ways. First, by walking according to the spirit, not the flesh. If you're new here, the idea of the flesh is your sinful nature. It's not your actual flesh, your body, right? It's, it's the sinful part of you that desires to take over what Jesus is doing in you, okay? So you walk that idea daily, step by step. You're doing this in a daily way. Secondly, we do that by setting our minds on the spirit, not on the flesh. We literally take our thoughts and we say, how can I schedule my thought time to be about the things of Jesus and his kingdom and how he is working in my life and, and people I can be with? The spirit can give you the power to do this. So you set your mind. And thirdly, by practicing the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. What does that look like practically? Practicing the presence looks like in your day-to-day -day mundane, changing a diaper, changing the oil, doing the dishes, doing laundry, that you are putting your mind on Jesus. It looks like you saying, Jesus, come help me do the laundry better than I could. I really want to impress my wife. I want to bless her. <laughs> God, please come and help me be a person that has patience with this really difficult situation or difficult person. Jesus, give me the grace to accept my lot in life right now. Give me the grace to accept my hard moment. Maybe it looks like that for some of you. But we are invited, not commanded. We are invited to live in integrity. But it's not just for like everybody else in the room. It's for you. It's for you. If you want to flourish, if you want to grow, Jesus invites us into a way of flourishing. And that's a way of integrity, which we see today. So we're going to close. As we do, would you stand? We're going to pray. We're going to take communion and give and do all those wonderful things. But before we move too quickly to that, I just want to take a moment and pause and just pray to ask the Spirit what He's doing and what He wants to continue to do in you and I in this moment. Holy Spirit, we just join this ancient prayer of come Holy Spirit again. 
right now we ask that you would make us aware, not in a shameful, hurtful way, but would you just make us aware of the things you want to do in us? Where are the areas that you're tugging, Holy Spirit? Would we just pay particular attention to that and, and notice that? For some, you're going to be led to confession and repentance. That idea of repentance is to go the other way, to literally 180 the situation and to agree with God that what you're living in is not actually helpful for you. To agree with God that flourishing is through an integrity. That's what repentance actually is and looks like. So Jesus, we ask that you would, even in this time of reflecting on the beautiful gift of the cross, would you please open up our minds, our hearts to your healing? Would you help us become these people that like keep our word and are people of integrity and people that love and build not only flourishing into our own lives through your spirit, but into this culture, into the city of Bend and throughout the world as we become these integrated full people in your spirit and by the power, especially by the power of your spirit. The phrase that's been going in my mind all day long, it's not heady, it's not even theologically deep, it's actually a children's song. Yes, Jesus loves me. And that phrase, the one that's sticking out is, for we are weak, but he is strong. And that sounds dismissively simple. But when we sit on that spirit, we just ask that you would bring that to life. The reality that yes, we are weak, but you have the strength to help, to overcome, to be delivered, to be filled. Fill us with joy, bless this time be honored by our sacrifice of worship to you.